This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. James Rollins has written enough best-selling novels to fill a tall bookcase. In most of them, a historical event or artifact is the catalyst for a modern-day catastrophe. I talked to James about his latest novel, Crucible. Fair warning, should the events depicted in this novel come to pass, and scientists soon develop an artificial intelligence capable of warp-speed learning capacity, fact will be so much stranger than fiction. I want to congratulate you on your, you know, I guess this is the 20th story of the Sigma 4 series. I think, what am I on? That's a good question. Actually, it's either the 13th or 14th, depending on whether or not you count Sandstorm as an official Sigma Force canon book. I always consider Sigma uh, Sandstorm to be sort of the prequel. Right. Um, I introduced Sigma Force in that novel, but the, the, the true team that has been ongoing for this successive series of novels really picked up with uh, Map of Bones. And that's this book is the 13th book in that you count in that sequence yeah right it's really complicated i know i know but i i have to tell so 13 you 13 or 14 depending on that or whether you count sandstorm is one of the uh the titles right yeah. i felt that the plot was as exciting as ever um i i in a word it was breathless whenever i keep turning the pages i i know that i'm you know i want to i wanted to find out what happens and and you know as always you have so many threads coming together in this one um i love the fact that um you know uh, you're using, once again, spiritual mysticism, uh, along with cutting-edge technology. I mean, the plot can lead to the annihilation of humankind. <laughs> so, uh, but I wanted to, I want to start at the beginning, which is the Spanish sure. Inquisition, and um, um, how a particular ancient religious sect got a hold of the book, uh, The Hammer of Witches, uh, Malleus Maleficarum, I guess, is how it's pronounced. You are pronouncing just as well as I can pronounce it. <laughs> that sounds beautiful. I'm sure that's the way the Latin is pronounced. Good to know. The book itself, how did you stumble onto it? And how did? And when, when did you have your aha moment that this was going to be a Sigma Force book? Well, I've always got my antenna up. I'm always looking for that that next, you know, bits and pieces on which I can construct a novel, you know, I'm looking for that historical mystery, um, you know, a piece of history that ends in a question mark, something I can solve within the pages of a novel. Or I'm looking for that bit of science that makes me go, what if, where's that headed? I'm looking for exotic locales in which this, you know, take, where stories can take place. Uh, so sometimes it's, you know, from reading, sometimes from traveling. In this case, uh, you know, I wish there was a uh, higher reason why I stumbled upon this this volume, The Hammer of Witches, this 1487 witch hunter's tome, but actually it was from a uh, a National Geographic special. They did a special about this uh, about this uh, this witch hunter's Bible, and I was fascinated by it by both the uh, sort of the mystery surrounding it, the fact that this is sort of a blood-soaked tome that's that. At this point, it's believed to have led to almost 60,000 deaths. Um, so I knew I always wanted to sort of set that book into as a, as a, as a, one of those kernels of that, of a story. I just didn't know what to do with it. So mm-hmm. it just went on to more of my, what I call my idea box, basically just a cardboard lawyer's box. 
sitting in the corner of my office. And whenever I get one of these ideas, I just throw it in the box. And so that's been germinating in that box for, for a few years now. And, you know, then I started sort of reading about um, the fact that a lot of women in scientific fields have felt persecuted by male colleagues. Uh, most of this came about that, like just recently, the um, the woman who won the Nobel Prize for Physics was just this year. Right. Was the first woman in like 114 years that won the uh, the Physics Nobel Prize. Um, so, how horrible is that? <laughs> yeah, reading reading about you know the history of Salem witch trial, mostly about the the European uh, witch persecutions that they were seeming to uh, pick a lot of women that seemed to be studying the natural world. Uh, these were healers that were, you know, dabbling in, uh, in, in pagan healing arts and helping to cure people in villages. Uh, these were women that were asking questions about the natural world, of course, being the male dominated world it was in the past, they were persecuted. It was wrong for women to, to, to dare question what was considered to be you know the dogma of the bible and of, of men in power and so i just saw that sort of parallel today and i thought well why don't i you know try to build the story around that this this pairing of, of persecution of women in the past who used to uh, you know, study the sciences into today where we're seeing a similar persecution of, of, of continuing persecution of women in in scientific fields right and i i also love the fact that um uh you have this consortium of female scientists and uh, Braxis, and then you have, you know, the the, the project uh, that they're about to embark on with this very very young female scientist, Mara, is artificial intelligence known as Eve, and um, that's that's in itself, you know, you've got the religious overtone there as well. Sure, and I just found this fascinating. I was I was raised Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic elementary school, Catholic junior high, and Catholic high school. Finally, in my college years, I broke away from that. But uh, so I was well versed in the in the the canon of saints, and so I was, I was surprised upon doing my research about uh, witches that there actually was a patron saint of witches in uh, in Spain, where there was a a saint who was believed to be uh, the patron saint of witches, not, not somebody that was trying to punish witches, but was someone that was trying to protect, a patron saint for protecting witches. Uh -huh. It's found just sort of, sort of an odd little fact of history that this that was actually a true saint in the, the canon of, of uh, Catholic saints. Well, if anybody needed protection, I would guess it would be witches. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One thing that was very uh, fascinating to me was the way you allowed the reader, for lack of a better term, go into the mind of uh, the AI program known as Eve. Uh, was it hard to come up with the right voice that told her story throughout the thread of the book? It was. I mean, it was, I, I always like trying to do an unusual point of view in my books. You know, I've done uh, points of views in prior books from the point of view of a military war dog. I've done it from the point of view of a Western mountain gorilla. The last book uh, was from the point of view of various casts in a WASP uh, system. So this this point was that I, I knew I wanted to try to personify what it might mean for an AI to develop this human level of intelligence and what that might look like. So that was a bit of a challenge. Um, 
I did a lot of research talking to different uh, scientists in the field. Uh, both were some were on the, you know, oh, this is going to be great. Other ones were on the, this is going to be something that's going to be a big challenge for us. And so what I kept hearing was, you know, if we're going to survive the appearance of a, a human-like intelligence that might quickly grow into a super intelligence, something that, that could potentially consider us to be a competitor for resources and eliminate us or enslave us, that it would be a good idea maybe to start building an AI that's friendly, that has uh, empathy for the human condition, that can relate to us uh, on a human level. And, and so I thought, well, how, I asked these scientists, well, how can you do that? What are, what are ways in which you can build a program that has uh, this human empathy? And so they told me different programs as I sort of elaborate a little bit in this book, like the endocrine mirror programs where mm. you can train these uh, algorithms that act like uh, human hormones hmm. and human hormones are the drives for a lot of our emotions uh, so if you can maybe build in these mirror programs maybe you can build in uh, a level of, of emotionality uh, into your into creations and so when creating eve uh, the program that i wanted to sort of bring from this code intelligence is just something that maybe would be friendly towards us um I leaned on an old short story, uh, The Flowers of Algernon. I don't remember if you ever oh read that. Oh, my God. Yes, I story. have read that, and I you cried. Know, you know, somebody that's given a drug that slowly is, you know, is fairly illiterate in the course of the short story novella uh, develops in a, you know, it's extreme intelligence, but unfortunately, he, he has to eventually lose that intelligence, which is very tragic. And so I, I went and reread that novella. So I sort of leaned on that a little bit. Uh, lean down to what I learned from talking to these AI scientists and then just uh, sort of trying to personify that as best I could. Great, great analogy. Um, and then you beautifully, you know, apply it to uh, Eve when she uh, when she's given Adam the, uh, you know, the dog. Her companion. Yes. Right. Yes. yes that was that was, again, leaning a little bit on my veterinary background, uh, but also the fact that that was one of the things what these scientists taught me uh, or informed me about was that one way to teach an AI uh, empathy is to give it something to care about. And so they were talking about doing some type of, you know, program where the, the, empathy, the AI would have something that, that it would have to care for. And the example they used was pairing up an AI in a cooperative video game where the AI had a partner in this video game and it was the goal of the AI to protect its partner during this during the, the, the shootout of a little war game that was playing and so it learned uh, to empathize with this uh, this bot this fictional player and so I wanted to sort of do that make it from a more personal level so of course, I had to have a little beagle puppy. <laughs> well, I think hum making artificial intelligence humanistic is going to be a major key to what you just said, hoping that it doesn't overcome what it feels is right for the quote unquote world versus its creators itself. I, I have a question about that later that I want to ask you. There was so much uh, humanity, too, in this book because of the family element that you brought in. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, with all the plot threads you have to unravel, one is the abduction 
of uh, Sigma Force Commander Gray Pierce's pregnant girlfriend, um, the you know Seishan, along with right. the two daughters of Gray's best friend, Monk Kakalis. I mean, that in itself was to me was like, oh my God, what a ticking clock you've just given them. Well, I definitely when I'm, I'm trying to construct a story, I'm always looking, you know, for that that bigger threat, that global, larger, you know sort of hopefully topical threat that, that I can bring about in this novel, in this case, you know, the threat of AI and how close we are to seeing that come to fruition. But when it comes to storytelling, I believe that what really grabs the readers when you can bring that threat to a more personal level. So we have the, the big overarching threat that's a, of a global nature, but I also like to bring that threat down to a personal level. So. One of the things that's fun about doing a series is that, you know, we get to see the breadth of a character's life change during the course of a, of a series. You know, I try to structure each of my books so that you can jump in wherever you, wherever you want to in the series. And I don't think anybody's really read my series in order. They just have to stumble across one of the books and pick it up. And so I structure that so that you can relate to each book. But I also like when I'm writing it to be able to see the growth of these characters. You know, we've seen... Uh, you know, monk, you know, fall in love with cat, have children with cat. What does that mean now when he's got to be out in the field, putting his life at risk? What does that mean from, you know, trying to balance the professional and personal life? You know, we've all, we all, we're always juggling that in in our own lives. And I think people can relate to that as when, maybe to the extreme in this case, when he's trying to protect his kids that have been kidnapped or where he's trying to protect his girl, his pregnant girlfriend that's been kidnapped. Um, at the same time, they're they're under an obligation to try to stop this global threat. So it's this juggling act that they're they're struggling with, and I think people can relate to that because I think we always experience that in some levels ourselves. We're trying to balance our professional and personal lives. Exactly, and um, you had a wonderful way of slicing and dicing the story, so that we're we're actually following the captives. We're following, uh, uh, you know, Gray. Uh, we're we're following um, the young scientist Mara, as uh, you know, she's trying to elude, uh, you know, the Crucibellum, you know, her those who want to to steal and and take uh, her wonderful program. Um, the abduction that occurs in Gray's house, um, you know, during the fight, Cat Bryant suffers a, a brain injury, and. Um, to the very end of the book, she's fighting for her life. Um, I, I want to, I'm not going to give away the ending, but I do want to say that I, I thought that how you projected uh, that fight and how AI might play a role in us learning more about the brain and channeling its, you know, its medical miracles. Um, did your own research in this area, did it leave you optimistic? It did. I mean, initially, when I started this novel, it was based upon reading uh, this nonfiction novel called The Final Invention uh, about the threat of AI. And it's quite terrifying. I mean, I don't think I've been that disturbed by a nonfiction uh, cautionary tale as going back to the hot zone that Richard Preston wrote about the Ebola crisis. I remember reading that in in college and being, being really scared about that. And this sort of I had that same sort of reaction when I read that. But at the same time, while I was doing my research about AI and you know, where it's headed and how it's being used, um, you know, there's there's a great 
miraculous potential in AI. Uh, the question is, you know, can we draw that line in the sand about, you know, what what we should cross and what shouldn't we cross, and if we're going to cross that line, what what are the gatekeepers in, involved in that, and and so that's all the different topics I was trying to to, to balance in this in this novel, showing both the mirac miraculous things AI can do, but also the the potential for disaster. Right, right. And um, when you, you actually see the medical hope in what happened with uh, Kat and, you know, that, that there might be uh, another way where they can reach beyond what that an AI, uh, you know, that artificial intelligence can reach beyond what we are able to do on our own. Right. 90% of Kat's medical treatment in this novel is based on real research and real progress made in that field and so uh i almost have to almost like at the end of the book say you know this may sound like it's science fiction but it's not we're right here at the cusp of, of being able to do what we're seeing in this novel i so appreciate that you had those notes in the back i actually looked up some of the articles because i was like wow you know this is this is what we need to to realize and to know um i also felt that you did a great job of showing how, you know, Monk's disability and his prosthetic arm gave him, gave him an interesting alliance with Eve. I presume that's something that you stumbled across as well? Right. That was uh, an article I read about the concern about potentially a, a foreign power or a foreign entity being able to manipulate someone's prosthesis. We know we've, we've already heard about, you know, the ability of some people to be able to hack into somebody's uh, car and able to actually turn off their car, turn on their car, control their car. And so what we're finding now is that a lot of the prosthetics nowadays are so advanced and so wireless that they also run the risk of being hacked. Mm. Um, and so when we're seeing the advancement of these brain interfaces between uh, uh, implants in the brain and a, and a prosthetic and the communication that occurs wirelessly and the concern that that is a hackable system right. and what happens if someone can, can actually hack into that system. Right. Oh, man. You were able to have such a uh, horrible foe in... Um, the Crucibellum. But the guild also came into play in this book. And um, I wanted you to discuss with me how you see the guild in this new iteration uh, in books moving forward. Right. The guild was, from the very beginning, sort of the, uh, the arch enemy or the nemesis of uh, Sigma Force. So Sigma Force are a group of Special Forces scientists that have been retraining various scientific disciplines to, to help stem and fight against various type of technological threats. And the Guild has sort of always been the dark shadow, which is the dark mirror version of Sigma. And so they've been, you know, butting heads for several books until eventually they were uh, dealt with in one of the books. But, you know, power doesn't like a vacuum. And so by eliminating this major global terrorist organization, 
for lack of a better term for what they are. Uh, there's a void. We're seeing, you know, book by book, the reemergence of a even more dangerous version of the guilt. Right, and and Valia certainly <laughs> was so evil in this in this iteration of the guild. I um, she's a she's a she's a troublemaker. That one. Wow, I can I so saw her in my mind's eye, and I I felt like a kid. <laughs> you know, I so felt for for Harriet. I so felt for those children. So. Um, I, I thought that was a good use of her. You know, Valia was introduced uh, two books ago, and, you know, we've seen her change over the course of these books as she's become, you know, basically just a tool of the guild that survived and was trying to survive, and now we're seeing her bloom into her nefarious self, and we'll be seeing potentially more of her. Maybe we won't. Oh. And her is a little bit cryptic at the end of this book. It was cryptic. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Readers do have their favorite evil characters <laughs> that love. Broad hint, broad hint. <laughs> you had a very beautiful passage at the end of the book. The very last uh, chapter in which Eve is, um, is floating. And we're floating with her. It gave me a different vision of future and time and how time really works in our lives. As you very well pointed out, and I won't put any spoilers in it, as to how certain things came back around in the story from where we started, which was the very big beginning of the Spanish Inquisition. How long will it be before we join Eve on the grand adventure of time travel? I don't know. Um... You know, I talked to various. Oh, oh Jim, you know everything. When... Don't don't say that. Please I, don't say that. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I, I heard. So I spoke to various various camps about AI, and there there is the this, what I call the singularitarians, those that believe that when this happens, it's going to be a great boon for human humanity when we see AI achieve a human level of intelligence. And there are then those like Elon Musk and. Uh, uh, Stephen Hawking, who believed that the creation of this first human level AI is probably going to be the end of mankind. Mm. Um, so we have those two camps. And so my question to both these camps was, when is it going to happen? And when, when do they believe, I was trying to get this, like, this voting going on, when do you think we will achieve this level of human level of intelligence? And it's, the, the, the range was, we already have. Some people believe that we've already, we've already crossed that threshold. We just haven't. They're, they're keeping it secret. Maybe a little bit of conspiracy theory, but there was some some evidence that they were able to show me that maybe they're right. To those that are saying it's probably the, the worst case scenario was within 20 years. I was the, the person that said the farthest out I can see would be two decades from now. Most of them were somewhere between now and 20 years from now, the average more between five to seven years from now. Mm. So that's when we're going to see that threshold reach. Now, <clears throat> how long does it take to go from a, a uh, human level of inter- intelligence, what's called a general uh, AGI or artificial general intelligence into a, a SI and artificial super intelligence? Some people say that may, may occur just a matter of hours uh, because it'll, it'll advance so quickly at that point, or it might be just a week or a month, but it'll happen fast. And at that point, if we survive it, hopefully 
I will get onto the singularitarian side and that this will be a big boom for human humanity. We'll see a, uh, an escalation of, of, of our technology boosted by this artificial intelligence and that we may be joining Eve on her journey much sooner than even I sort of hint at at the end of this book. Wow. Wow. Well, um, I think it was a, a wonderful subject for someone someone of someone like you to tackle because of your basis and grounding in science and your ability to think like a visionary. So thank you for bringing us into that world and seeing it differently, both it's uh, the danger of it and the beauty of it. I think you balanced it very well. Well, thank you. That was that was my goal was to, you know, be a cautionary tale, but not be all gloom and doom that there is potential for a wonderful outcome. If we, if we really pay attention to what we're doing, you know, there's only a small portion of the industry, the AI industry that is trying to develop the friendly AI systems. Most of them are just rushing towards, you know, be the first to cross that goalpost, the first to have to reach that level of the human level intelligence. And um, whereas there's a smaller group that is trying to be a little more cautious and develop that that friendly AI is not just to go right towards that cold intelligence, but try to create something that can grow alongside us. And uh, that was one of the the goals of this novel is is maybe to to encourage people to look for that friendly gatekeeper because we're going to need it. We're going to need somebody that's going to be able to fight at the level of a, a artificial superintelligence that might be more uh, more dangerous. We're going to need a, a soldier that can can fight on our side, and the only way we're going to do that is developing something of equal potency, but one that has empathy, sympathy, and has uh, some type of, uh, of relation to the human condition. Well, knock on wood, um, I, I I truly believe fiction is one way, as you know, as you grew up and as I grew up as children who were avid readers, it it, it spurs our imagination, but it also gives us the big what-if picture and and maybe creates more scientists who want exactly what you just described. And I would love that. (laughs) I would love to encourage people to go more into STEM, both men and women. We definitely need more scientists in the world. Less politicians. <laughs> great, a great place to end this interview. <laughs> James Rollins's Crucible will be in bookstores on January 22nd, 2019. But don't wait to pre order this thriller from your local bookstore. Do it now. Want to read the accompanying article for this interview? You'll find it online at thebigthrill.com. This is Josie Brown, author provocateur. 